0: Blue Blockers, Germs on Mars, and the Science of Cults. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike.
1: you has got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But i will talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life.
0: Welcome to Ask Science, Mike—the weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves a non-judgmental and honest response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg. The internet calls me Science Mike, and uh, well, hell, that's a long story. For now, we're just going to answer a bunch of science questions with a focus on honoring questions and giving them good responses. So, what do you say, friends? Let's get it started. Yeah. Well, if you listen to Ask Science Mike, you know this is a show about your questions and your questions being responded to uh, in a sincere way. But did you know how to get your questions on the show? It's very simple. Just go to AskScienceMike.com. And once you go to that website, that's where the podcast is hosted. If you scroll toward the bottom of the page, you'll see that there's two ways to send a question. First, you can record a voicemail. You can hear your voice on the show. And second, especially if you want to send a question that is maybe anonymous, you can email me a question. Using either of those systems, we'll get a question into the team behind Ask Science Mike where they are reviewed and collated. And I literally don't even know what happens. And then uh, some of those questions get selected and they get posted on the Patreon page for Ask Science Mike where the patrons of this program pick the questions every week. I thought I was doing a Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers there for a second with all those peas. Gosh. Anyway, um, we'd love to answer your questions. So just go to asksciencemike.com and submit your question. Of course, some tiers of patrons get questions on the show automatically, and every patron gets to vote on the questions that go on the show. So if you're not a patron of Ask Science Mike, and you've thought about it as little as $1 a month, gets you into the Ask Science Mike Patreon crew uh, where you get to vote on questions and we do some monthly Q&As and uh, there's there's special perks for those people who make this show financially possible. So, uh didn't mean to do a Patreon plug there right up front. It just seemed to naturally fit with reminding you to send in questions because we always need questions or this podcast, well, it, it doesn't happen without questions. I don't want to just listen to what I want to talk about. I don't, I mean, gosh, what would we do? Uh, talk about how much I love magic and dungeons and dragons be a completely different show. So please keep this podcast interesting by telling me what you want me to talk about. Uh, also in January, I'm going on the road again. Uh, medical rest has gone really well. I am feeling so much better. Uh, so I am going to take a couple of trips in January Uh, Starting January 11th, I'll be at Trinity Church in Buffalo, New York for the Fresh Voices series. And then this is wild. I've done this a couple of times and really enjoyed it. I'm going to Fort Smith, Arkansas for a full week beginning on January 20th and going through the 27th. Uh, I'll be doing a week's worth of events in First Presbyterian Church and Fort Smith, Arkansas, for an event called A Week with Mike McCarg," So I'd love to see you at either of those events. If you want more information, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on that events button. Our first question this week was an email question, and it's actually a really fun one. Here it goes. Hi, Mike. At the beginning of the movie The Martian, which you should see if you haven't already, astronaut Mark Watney gets caught in a dust storm on the surface of Mars and suffers a pretty serious puncture wound. My husband remarked that at least he wouldn't have to worry about infections since there's no bacterial life there. But I can't imagine that getting sterile or sterile not sterile, sterile Martian dirt inside a wound wouldn't be problematic for healing well. A foreign body is a foreign body. What do you think is Mars antiseptic? Thanks, Sonia. Uh, That's a great question. Number one, let's talk about The Martian. Gosh, I love The Martian. Uh, I read the novel first. I mean, when it first came out, there was a review on a website I read called Ars Technica, and I was so fascinated because this journalist, who's a total nerd and I trust a lot, said that the uh, fidelity of the science in the novel was really high. And so I read it, and sure enough, I, you know, If you study orbital mechanics or cosmology or rocketry or rocket science at all, most books and films become really frustrating to read. Now, there are uh, certain genres in in literature, especially hard sci-fi, where sometimes people go through great detail to make sure that the action depicted in their narrative uh, is at least plausible, if not actually simulated (laughs) sometimes, uh, according to the laws of physics. But those books can also sometimes be a slog to read. So what was fascinating to me about The Martian is that it was well-researched and scientifically plausible with a couple of small uh, exceptions and uh, a great read, just a phenomenal story. And then you could have knocked me over with a feather in the Martian atmosphere uh, when the movie turned out to be just about as accurate as the book. I mean, there are only like two scenes in that whole movie where I just go, are you kidding me? One, of course, is the uh, storm in the beginning. Yes, there are dust storms on Mars, but because the atmosphere is so thin, high-speed winds on Mars don't actually carry much force. You could walk right through a Martian tornado and uh, pretty much be unaffected other than the problems you would have with visibility. So that was one problem. The second problem was the whole, um, you know, guiding. uh, Well, in the end, you know, I don't mind saying the beginnings. If you haven't seen the film, I'm not going to ruin the end. There's another scene toward the end involving a glove um, that, although possible, I just didn't think anyone had the skill level to do. But I'll go ahead and accept those two things in that film because the film and the movie were so good. But we didn't want to talk about how good the Martian was. This isn't a question asking me to review the film. You wanted to know about germs. And that is a complicated question. Um, Let's talk about the soil of Mars first, or Mars in general. Is there microbial life on Mars? We don't know. We have rovers on Mars, and uh, the results are inconclusive. Number one, the equipment we have on Mars today is not designed To specifically test for life, although it is is testing for some byproducts related to life, we found some fascinating things on Mars. More water than we expected in some places. Less water in others. A more defined seasonal cycle of liquid water availability. Some fascinating variations in uh, atmospheric levels on the uh, localized basis of both methane and oxygen that could be driven by life cycles of blooms and, and uh, declines of microbial life as some description. Would that life be bacteria? We don't know. It would potentially be xenobiology. There are some theories that life on Earth didn't begin on Earth but began on Mars and was brought here uh, basically from, you could imagine, something similar to a bacterial spore or endospore following a meteor collision on Mars that ejected matter from the surface of that planet and then by sheer chance some of it made it here, survived atmospheric entry, and became the origins of life on this planet. That is one theory for a biogenesis on Earth. So it is possible that there is microbial life on Mars. We don't know how similar or dissimilar that life may be to our microbes. But that is the bigger issue. It is possible there could be some exotic bug on Mars that makes us very sick. I don't think that's likely, but it is possible. What we do know, my friends, is that every human being is covered in and full of bacteria. By some counts, there are 10 bacterial cells for every one human cell in your body. Now I've heard that figure disputed, and I've heard it validated, and all of the people both disputing and validating those figures know much more about microbiology than I do. So I will simply tell you that there's a debate on that matter that I personally am not qualified to solve. But what is unanimously understood by everybody is that there's a whole bunch of bacteria in, on, and around your body. And that you are structured with an immune system and an epidermis specifically designed to protect your inner cells from encountering unfriendly bacteria that don't belong inside of you. For example, I often have a staph colony, staph bacteria, that lives in my nose. Pretty gross, huh? Yeah, well, you know, Uh, oversharing is what I do for a living. Uh, And so sometimes if I get a cut or a scrape, it gets really, really, really badly infected. If that staph colony that we think lives in my nose gets somewhere on my skin, like maybe I sneeze. And then I get a really, really bad infection that's hard to clear up in that wound. Now, if I got on a rocket ship and I went to Mars and I had an accident and I was impaled by a metal rod. There would be a risk of infection even if that metal rod and that Martian soil had no germs in it at all because there are germs on the outside of my body that don't belong inside my body. The actual foreign matter of Martian dirt could be irritating, especially because we understand that there are um, alkaline components that are somewhat toxic to people. That was another part of that movie that's probably wrong. You You may be able to grow potatoes in the Martian soil, you probably couldn't eat them. They would probably make you pretty sick or even kill you. But assuming you wash the wound, the primary risk of infection, in my mind, for Mark Whitney, Watney, would not be Martian germs, but the germs he brought with himself from Earth, which, by the way, if the Martian was a documentary and those events had really happened, it's possible that in that moment, the bacteria of Mark Watney's body, in and out, colonized Mars. So even when humans left, and even if there were no bacteria on Mars before, bacteria are so tough that it's possible some of them could survive. Some of them could even thrive and spread, and that's why in human and robotic space travel, we have sanitation and sterilization protocols to minimize the risk of microbes on this planet migrating to other planets and becoming natives there. Because, you can imagine, we are a very competitive planet. We've got some tough generalist and specialist species of microbial life. You can imagine they end up in the atmosphere of Saturn or the surface of one of those moons or, yes, on Mars. Could it be that our bacteria got there? and wiped out alien life before we ever found it. It's entirely possible. And that's why Mark Watney would have had to watch out for infection, because the Earth is a planet absolutely thriving with microbial life, and Mark Watney came from the Earth. Ask Science Mike is made possible by sponsors, one of whom is KiwiCo, uh, my longest running at this point sponsor, who I just absolutely love. You hear me talk about KiwiCo all the time. If you haven't, KiwiCo is a service where you sign up for a subscription and then someone in your life, probably a child, gets a crate in the mail every month. And that crate is is about hands-on experiences with STEAM. And I don't mean scalding STEAM. I mean science, technology, engineering, art, and math. There are seven lines to choose for children of all ages and all developmental levels uh, that incorporate all of the topics above. They're tons of fun. I found in my house this is the best way to get my teenage daughters to set down their cell phones. And special right now, KiwiCo is perfect for the holiday season. Don't go down to Toys R Us aisle. Uh, Don't go to Target or whatever and buy another plastic toy that someone else probably got anyway and you might be the wrong movie franchise. Who knows? Get KiwiCo. There's something for every kid on your list. It makes the perfect gift for every young explorer, engineer, or artist in your life. And KiwiCo has gifts for kids of all ages and types of interests. If you go to kiwico.com, Science. I'll say that again, slash science. Kiwico is offering listeners of this podcast their first crate for free. So that means the crate under the tree, you don't even pay for it. All you do is pay shipping and Kiwico sends it. And then for the rest of the year, that special person or child in your life will continue to get crates every month. I love them, especially. The new Eureka crate for older teens and adults—we're getting them at our house. Uh, and I'll—I'll I'll be honest. My family sits down together, and we all make our Kiwi crates, uh, and we have so much to. Do. So, Kiwi Co's mission is to empower kids to not just make a project, but make a difference. And you can be a part of that. Just go to kiwico.com/slash/science to learn more. And our second sponsor this week. Oh, man, I just love. You've heard me talk about them before. Not as a sponsor, uh, but as my friends. BioLogos is sponsoring this episode of Ask Science Mike. To celebrate something, I was recently a guest on their podcast, which in a second I'll play you a snippet of that. So if you'd like to hear me in what I thought was a very tender and beautiful conversation uh, with my friend uh, James Stump, uh, I'd absolutely love um for you to listen to that you get you get to hear a second here uh for free and uh well it's free over there as well uh but anyway it's a good conversation i like biologos because for those of you who are trying to fit in contemporary understandings of science especially evolutionary biology with what i would call a more orthodox view on christianity that's what Biologos does. They were founded by Francis Collins, who you may or may not know, uh, led the Human Genome Project and was the direct is the director of the National Institute of Health, appointed by Obama and continuing to, uh, continuing to serve under Trump, which is a pretty rare combination. He wrote a book called The Language of God, which is a New York Times bestseller, and uh, I just love Biologos because, you know, we kind of fit in different lanes. I like talking about science in a way that uh, helps people, regardless of their faith background, feel more comfortable with science. And I like people who aren't religious to understand a little more about the science of religion. Uh, but let's be honest. like My beliefs to most uh, Christians are pretty out there. And what I really enjoy about my friends at BioLogus is the way that uh, they offer people who want a more traditional and Orthodox Christian theology To still integrate good science and friends, this is so, so important. Not only because I understand that differing views on evolution really actually cause pretty significant mental health issues, especially for young people, but because science literacy matters, and BioLogos can reach people, including people listening to this podcast, who hold more traditional Christian theologies while allowing them to grow in their science literacy and I believe that science literacy is good for the world. So I hope you'll listen for the next four minutes as I share a clip of my conversation with James over on the BioLogos podcast. And
2: uh, after that, we'll get back to our show as scheduled. I've heard you talk about the fact that the word God mm-hmm. gets used very differently by lots of different people. And so when we're sitting here talking about the existence of God, even, what do we even mean by that? What
0: I try to do when I talk about God is be aware that all of us in the room probably think different things. So now what do we do? Right? Well, it means we probably shouldn't make universal claims about God without admitting we're talking about different things. Uh, Some of the ways I think about God, atheists are very comfortable with. They're like, why why do you just, just say Cosmos, dude? Well, no, if I say cosmos, that activates a different set of neural pathways in my brain based on how human brains process language. And I like really like the whole mystery spirituality thing. So as the God label, it just
2: activates different parts of my brain. Like, and there are other conceptions of God that atheists reject that yes. I'm perfectly comfortable rejecting too. Absolutely. I'm an atheist about that kind yeah. of God. Totally.
0: Thank you. So um, I'm less interested in putting forward. My idea of God as the one everyone should get behind. I mean, I'm more than happy to share my conceptions of God, but I'd rather just have everybody admit like, hey, you've got a thing in your brain with the word God that's different than that brain and that brain and that brain and that brain. So now what do we do? And I think it means we have to be patient and loving and humble when we talk about matters of faith and
2: anything that invokes the G word. So one of the big dividing lines um, between conceptions of God is whether God is ultimately personal yes. or not. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, we have difficulties with what does personal mean, though, too, yeah. right? Again, the trouble with the language. But. Yeah, so the,
0: if, I like, if I go through physics to find God, if God is like some kind of creator-sustainer for everything we can see and measure, and that means God has to be somewhere north of a relativistic understanding of the universe. And in a relativistic understanding of the universe, a time-based consciousness is nonsense. <laughs> it's just not a thing. Like the way we conceive of the universe is inseparable from 86 billion neurons sitting on a planet, right? A cosmic entity simply could not conceive of reality the way we do and exist a Cosmic entity would probably not differentiate between present past and future Right that gets really hard to call personal but Somehow when I pray and meditate God shows up in a personal way and Those two things uh, in my philosophical mind are at odds but being a good mystic, I just sit and contemplate it. And it's super I hate, I hate like when rigorous thinkers talk to me, I just I know they will leave disappointed. Because I'll forest gump every time. <laughs> Maybe it's both. Maybe both are happening at the same time. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Like the the problem is if we really push to what my primary framing of the world is, it's a brain centered understanding of the human experience. So what I understand is that if I apply an analytical, reductive or philosophical lens to my pursuit of God, it moves into my left hemisphere of the brain and it moves towards the front of my brain and that's the opposite corner of where spirituality lives. So I'll play that game but I won't go hard because it neurologically rebiases my brain away from what I value most in my faith, which is the experience of God's presence. So I intentionally make sure two-thirds or more of the time I spend with this word God are spent in practice and experience and not in analysis. I'm not sure, but I think this might be the most succinctly stated question in the history of this show. Do blue light glasses actually work? What is the science behind them? Roger. (laughs) Do blue light glasses actually work? What is the science behind them? That's a 12-word question for Ask Science Mike. I cannot recall one with such brevity. (laughs) So, Roger... Uh thank you for your direct communication. <laughs> uh let's talk about blue blockers for a second. Uh well first of all what is a blue blocker or blue light glasses? These are special uh lenses on on glasses you wear that are designed to reduce the amount of blue light that gets to your eyes. Now why would you want to block blue light from your eyes? Uh, Let's talk about where most blue light comes from in our lives. First of all, and that's from the sun. And let's be very clear that based on the research I've seen, blue light is not harmful for your eyes. However, something that's even a smaller wavelength than blue light, which is ultraviolet light, is harmful for your eyes. And that's why most uh, optometrists and opticians recommend that you wear sunglasses, especially uh, polarized sunglasses, if you're going to be outdoors, because UV light is just as bad for your eyes as it is for your skin, based on our understanding of medicine today. Um, And so now, because we know that UV light is bad, we started to wonder if blue light is bad for our eyes, because uh, the TV screens and iPhones and Android phones and computer monitors and tablets and everything we look at tends to just throw blue light at our eyes let's be clear the blue light of these screens is less intense than even a pretty dim day outdoors right the sun is very very bright few things in our life experience offer anywhere near the intensity of light or frankly radiation that our own sun offers but uh because that blue light from the sun uh, is kind of one of the primary factors governing our sleep schedule, we do understand that devices with blue light in them can help disrupt the rhythms, the circadian rhythms, that help us get quality sleep. So in addition to being suspected in causing eye strain and eye soreness, we also understand that perhaps all this blue light is interfering with our sleep and, therefore, glasses that reduce the amount of blue light that gets to our eyes might help with both of those things. You've also seen efforts um, from different computer manufacturers and phone manufacturers to shift the color temperature of screens as the days uh, get more advanced so that you're looking at more yellow light and less blue light as it gets later in the day. And now, today, not only is that feature built in for free in most operating systems on any recent vintage phone, or computer system, uh, blue-blocking glasses are are relatively affordable. They're not a very expensive item to procure, especially for health. Uh, And so the American Academy of Ophthalmology um, says they're okay. They're certainly not harmful. Um, However, they indicate, and my research uh, as well shows, that there's far from a clear picture on blue blockers doing anything. We know they're not well, it's very unlikely they're harmful in any way. But studies have failed to show any significant contribution to improved sleep quality, uh reduced eye strain, reduced headaches or any of those things with people wearing blue blockers. That said, my optometrist recommends them and wants me to get a pair since I work on the computer so much, but the larger uh, studies, and and there's not that many, and the sample sizes aren't that big, but preliminary research doesn't seem to uh, show anything big happening here. If you do want to protect yourself from eye strain, uh, the American Academy of Ophthalmology recommends that you sit an arm's length from your computer screen, and you position your screens that you're gazing slightly downward. My desk is set up that way, and it certainly helps. You don't want a lot of screen glare, and if you have some, get a matte screen filter. And you want to take regular breaks every 20 minutes. Look at an object 20 feet away for at least 20 seconds, which is called the 20-20-20 rule. If your eyes feel dry, artificial tears can help, although you want to be careful about the composition of those tears and uh, lighting matters. Um, and I'll, as always, you know if you wear contacts, try glasses. They actually can be easier on your eye. Um, So that's what they recommend instead of blue blockers. Uh, I'll put a link to a meta study as well, a study of studies on AskScienceMike.com where they went through and they looked at multiple studies that had seemingly solid methodology and not huge but decent sample sizes uh, where they did not find high-quality evidence to support using blue blockers uh, to improve visual performance or sleep quality or to alleviate eye fatigue, or conserve macular health. Uh, so, uh, the science behind them, the, th- the theory is absolutely sound. Blue light does interfere with our sleep quality. Um, that's a given. We know that. Unfortunately, right now, it doesn't look like blue blockers help improve sleep quality. And we do have lots of eye strain and eye health issues, but that's mainly because um, we, you know, we're using these devices too close to our faces a lot and maybe something free instead of uh buying a pair of blue blocking glasses could help and that's following that 20 rule to improve your eye health okay our last question is a little heavier uh, so if you have backgrounds or experiences with extreme religious fundamentalism or cults uh, consider this a trigger warning. If you need to pause and come back later or at any time during this answer, you need to pause and take a break. Feel free to do so. Take care of yourself and take care of your mental health. Okay, so here's the question. Hey, Science Mike, I was wondering if you would share a little bit about the science of cults. There was a brief discussion of what constitutes a cult in the suffering episode of the Liturgist podcast where Michael Gunger called a church he attended a cult. I've since attempted to do my own research on the topic, but it seems academics nowadays don't use the term cult and hardly acknowledge they are harmful at all. The reason I ask is quite personal, as my family was in a real deal separate from society cult. Child brides were the norm. I've attended many evangelical churches. Over the years before my deconstruction, and while that belief system has indeed been harmful to me and many others, it really bothers me when people call those churches cults. It's not the same as living on a commune run by an egomaniacal, child-abusing dictator. I was just wondering if you could bring any clarity to the topic. Thanks. Well, let's start... um, start by saying I'm sorry that you went through that. Your email is so well written and so clear and I can tell that your thoughts are clear and composed as well. Um, But if that was me there'd be a lot of hurt inside me if I'd been through what you've been through. If it was me there would be a lot of emotional scarring There would be a lot of bitterness and resentment and anger. That perhaps would be so intense, I would have a hard time even accessing it. So no matter what I say in my response to your question, I just want you to know that that experience sounds really hard. And I'm so happy that you made it. That you not only survived, you made it out and I just wonder if we you and I together right now could just take a moment to savor that
1: you're out you're free you made it and here's the difficulty my friend so many people have trauma.
0: So many people have trauma. And everyone has pain. And if we compare the experiences that caused our pain and our trauma, we might try to rank them. So someone who was embarrassed because of a friend didn't show up to dinner one night and they were left sitting at a table alone. Compared to someone like me, who didn't have any friends as a child and was very bullied. Compared to someone like you, who was abused in a cult environment. We might be tempted to rank some people's pain and trauma as worse, and some other people's pain and trauma as less bad. But what I've been learning for the last two years is that our brains don't work that way. The meaning-making parts of our brains certainly do. We, We can rank and compare experiences against our own and imagine that they are more or less severe. But in the ways that our brains and bodies respond to emotional pain, to trauma, our brains only know what has hurt us and how much it hurt. And our bodies, they bear the marks of those experiences.
1: The release of hormones, the
0: changes in tissue composition, even a, a heightened or suppressed startle or polyvagal response. So if I were you, and I heard someone on a podcast use the word cult to describe their experience, and it was less intense than mine, I think I would feel erased and forgotten as well. And yet, when I look at the impact of many parts of evangelical Christianity, I mean specifically white evangelical Christianity, the gay teen suicide the suicides of people who've lost their faith and are afraid of being ostracized which by the data we tell us is we find is quite common the stunted emotional development the patterns of codependence the elevation of narcissists a cult and mainstream american White evangelical Christianity are different, but they both hurt a lot of people. And perhaps the average impact on one person of evangelicalism is less. I would say almost certainly. But evangelicalism is such a massive system. It's, it's implicated in the foreign policy of the United States. What I'm saying is you're hurt about people misusing the word cult is real and is valid and important. And people who've escaped the toxicity of white evangelical Christianity, how their use of the word cult helps to liberate them. And this is where language and feelings and the intersection of our words and our feelings, gets complicated. By a technical definition, a cult is a charismatic leader who increasingly becomes an object of worship as the general principles that may have originally sustained the group lose power, a process that uses coercive persuasion or thought reform to control people, an economic, sexual, and other exploitation of group members by the leader or the ruling group. That's according to the Cult Education Institute. And you were in an insular, self-contained, toxic, abusive, and horrible cult. But the evangelicalism of today, it seems to fit that definition better than it ever has and seems to be becoming more and more cult-like. So what do we do with that?
1: What do we do with your experiences and my experiences?
0: I believe that every person's feelings matter every time. Every feeling people have is important. And every person who has feelings is important. And every time people have feelings, it's important. It should be paid attention to. And that means that as you express your hurt with the word cult being misused, I want to sit with you in that and say, yes, your feelings of hurt matter. They come from a real place. And then when my friend Michael uses the word cult to describe his experience. I understand that also comes from a place of hurt and woundedness and trauma. And in that moment, Michael's feelings, they matter to me as well. For me, I've decided that as people process their feelings, I want to try to be gracious and patient and careful. And in those moments that people are processing trauma, I just want them to be able to do so. And as they feel safe and secure and accepted, then we can have conversations about language and when to use
1: it. I don't know the right answer to this question. What I know is that there's a lot of hurt,
0: a lot of pain, and a lot of trauma in the world. Because the days are so hard, as we become aware collectively of the changing climate, as global and national politics seem to lose their minds and become worse than they've ever been in living memory, we can't rely on our earth because we've harmed it. We can't rely on our politics because it's metastasized into something singularly corrupt and frightening. At the same time, we're all, or at least many of us, are learning to be emotionally sensitive and aware. It seems like at the same time, millions of people, their traumatic experiences are outgassing as they're in a a cloud of fear and anxiety.
1: Friend, these these are difficult times for everyone. And it seems like they're uniquely difficult for you. I don't know the science of cults.
0: What I know is that insular social groups often called cults like the one you grew up with, well, they really do cause lasting and significant psychological harm. And I see that I name that, and I accept that. And I'm so sorry that a friend of mine on a podcast that I helped create triggered some of that trauma for you.
1: And I don't expect you to be gracious in that situation. I validate your expression of pain. And
0: as you validate that experience of pain, I hope for you, something happens that has happened for me, that you become more sensitive and aware to not only your own pain, which there's probably more there than you even know, but to the pain and trauma that surrounds us everywhere, I believe so strongly, my friends, that we have to be truly careful with each other And that if we learn to relate to our own feelings, we can learn to relate to each other better. And maybe, just maybe, we can create a world that we want to live in together. My dear friend Andre Henry says, it doesn't have to be this way. He even sells shirts that say that. I've got a sweatshirt like that in my closet. It doesn't have to be this way. And I wonder if maybe a first step in the process of changing things is to learn to be patient both with our own feelings and with the feelings of others. Ask Science Mike is brought to you by the most wonderful team in radio. Our producer is Caitlin Hermstad. Our director and sound designer is Greg Nordine. Andrew Golucky provides pre-production services and Brent Cradle handles management. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, and the show is sponsored by, run by, and taken care of by my patrons on Patreon. The theme song for Ass Science Mike was written, performed, and recorded by Jeff Botiford. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.